Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com slash notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Mark Suster is the managing partner at Upfront Ventures, an early stage venture firm based in LA that has backed companies like Bird, Ring, Goat, Appeal Sciences, and many others. Previous to Upfront, Mark was an entrepreneur with two successful exits. He's been an active blogger at bothsidesofthetable.com for more than a decade and has been one of the largest proponents for the technology community in LA. We're thrilled to have him as a guest on Origins today. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I think a good place to start is just give us the quick rundown on your background, where you grew up, um, what brought you to LA. Well, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. So that is the conundrum. How am I a Philadelphia Eagles fan when I actually grew up in California? That is because I was born in Philly. My mother's from outside of Philly, and my dad moved to the United States uh, for his residency at Hahnemann in Philadelphia. So when I grew up, we moved to California when I was three, and uh, they were Phillies and Eagles fans, and so was I. And I grew up in the era of Mike Schmidt and Greg Luzinski and Steve Carlton and all the greats from the Phillies uh, when we won the World Series in 1980, mm-hmm. 80-81. Uh, it was in 1980, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so anyway, but I grew up in California. I grew up in Northern California, and I grew up programming software. And that's pretty normal these days. It was not so normal when I grew up. Right. It was uh, in the early 80s. Uh, and my parents had bought a computer and, uh, it's hard for me to explain to younger people, the idea that there's no DVRs, there's no ability, there was no VHS. There's no ability to watch television shows unless it's broadcasting originally. So you had a lot of free time as a kid and you either were in fields, lighting fires or in front of computers programming. And this was Bay area. So I grew up in the capital of California. It's called Sacramento. Okay. 
I've heard of it. Yeah. And did you go down that rabbit hole and not come out? Like when you when you discovered computers for the first time and programming, did you know that that was something that you wanted to spend your career and life being part of? Yes. Or was it a slower? No, I was okay. that weird conundrum yeah. because um, I started programming and in high school, I worked in a computer store. And I actually sold software. So okay. it was called um, so Software you were, Center. You were full on, full on nerd. Yes and no. This is, <laughs> so I'm going to go through the, the, yeah. the dichotomy, which is um, I loved logic and I loved problem mm. solving. And that's what computers brought for me. So I taught computer classes at my high school. They asked me to do that. I helped the school actually with programming their computers um, also. And... I got this job in a computer store. Again, it's a strange thing to explain to people, but you couldn't download software. There was no downloading. If right. you wanted software, you went to a retail store. Uh, probably the biggest was called Egghead Software, and I worked in their competitor called Software Center, and I sold software. And so I actually learned about accounting software and operating systems and graphics. And there was a program called Harvard Graphics back in the day, uh, you know, before we had PowerPoints and Keynote and all this. So I was really interested in that, but I was pretty social too. And okay. uh, so I threw keg parties and did all the kind of naughty stuff that we did in the 1980s. Uh, and on top of that, I was a theater kid and I loved mm. acting and, and I still love, you know, theater. Mm. So I, I think I was all the above. That's cool. You started two companies. Yes. Beyond just software and computers, when did you discover or maybe consider entrepreneurship in one way or another? So I graduated university in 1991, and uh, I started with what's now called uh, Accenture. Yeah. Uh, and I started as a software programmer. So the nice thing is I got to travel all over the world. I lived and worked in Japan, in all over Europe, in Italy, in Hungary, in Spain, in uh, France, in the UK. And this was as a software consultant. So Co working correct. with all sorts of different companies. But programming. Yeah. So I started yeah. programming and then I did system design and then I did testing. I did yeah. both user testing and backend testing and then system testing. And then I ran teams. So in my mid-20s, I was running teams of, you know, dozens of people. And you sort of learn by doing uh, good and sure. bad. And then I learned how to sell, you know, because you rise up the ranks and you become a manager and you're expected then to be able to support teams. And so mm -hmm. that requires you to spec out projects, uh, deliver them and sell. Uh, so that's what I did uh, initially. and. It was nice because I also learned how to work with incredibly big companies because most of my clients were very large companies. So I understand how budgets work, right. how teams make decisions, how politics works, how to get stuff uh, approved. And I also understand that, you know, this idea that you build perfect software and you hand it off to somebody is kind of a fantasy to expect then an organization to get it working. So I understand a lot about professional services and rollout and working with clients and getting support. So I did that for a long time and I had the pull to entrepreneurship the whole time. I mean, I started mm. my first company in high school. Uh, I think as a lot of people did, I, I yep. started a t-shirt company and sold t-shirts and made money doing that. Uh, I did make money selling uh, beer at keg parties, although that was less legal. Um, and so I had this kind of itch my whole life. My mother was an entrepreneur. My mother started several businesses and 
yet I had this pull of a big paycheck and working in fancy sure. locations and somebody paying for, you know, plane tickets for me to fly all over the world. But it just built up. And in 1999, I, I was sitting in a hotel in Japan and on my own. And it sounds glamorous. I always say like international travel is super glamorous for people who don't have to do it for work. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And then yeah. it's just a, it's just an airplane in a hotel room. And so I just like the pressure built up and, and I had been talking to all my colleagues about different ideas. And I finally just said, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And I was just before making partner. Mm-hmm. And so really I thought if I made partner, I would make enough money that I would never do it. And I didn't want to be that guy. So I quit. Yeah. So ultimately you left and started build online. I think right. it was your first company. Was that idea in your head already? Or were you just like, I, I just need to leave or I'm going to be here forever and I need to go start something? So I started Build Online for all the wrong reasons. And so I use this as a lesson for entrepreneurs. Do what you're really passionate about because you're going to spend ungodly amounts of hours mm. in your life and you're going to have to go to conferences and events and you're going to wake up at two in the morning thinking about work it might as well be something you're passionate about. What actually happened is I had been in Japan and working in the telecom sector. So I knew a lot about networks. And uh, back then they were building things called CDNs, content uh, delivery networks. And I met with the very first CDN, Akamai, and I almost joined as like employee 25. So I'd been looking at network infrastructure. And because I was in Japan, they had this wave of texting and of using mobile phones in ways that Americans weren't using it yet. Americans weren't texting. They weren't doing stuff on their phones. And so I wanted to start something in the mobile data area. And I went and I pitched a bunch of VCs and nobody was interested. And I had a friend from business school uh, who was an architect and a real estate developer. And he talked about all the inefficiencies that existed in the construction process. And... I went out with him to help him raise money and everyone was interested. Hmm. And because they were interested and willing to give us money, you know, he said to me, why don't you just join and run the company? Hmm. So I did. And that was the wrong reason. It was fine. Like I enjoyed it. It was a good journey. I learned a lot. I loved my colleagues. I met important people. I learned about venture capital, about hiring, about building software, about selling to customers. But if I could do it over again, I wouldn't have done it. How did you learn all those things? Just by, just by doing? Like, yeah. Like, I think back to whatever, late 90s, there's no bloggers. That's true. There's very little information. How did you learn those things? How did you find VCs? How did you, I you learned know? everything by fucking everything up, hmm. is the truth. So I was pretty good at raising money. I was pretty good at attracting team. I was pretty good at press. Um, so I was able to raise a $16.5 million A round. Wow. And In the, late 90s. Yeah. So this was a part of the so dot com. It actually closed the last week of February 2000. Wow. Uh, if you know your history, March is when things broke towards the negative. And it's a lesson, which is uh, m- some of my colleagues, my senior execs, wanted us to hold out and talk to more investors and make it competitive and try and get a higher valuation. Excuse me. And uh, I just said, no, I really like this VC. They're kind of a pain in the ass, but they're working hard and making me better and making me work Hmm. harder. And I think when people push you harder, you achieve more. So I like that, you know, pushback. Where were they? Uh, Where's this Bay Area? So 
here's the interesting thing. It was a company called Global Retail Partners. Hmm. They had offices in Los Angeles, in London, and in Paris. And Global Retail Partners rebranded as eventually GRP. And GRP, uh, I rebranded as Upfront Ventures. So got it. it's the same firm. Wow. So, okay. So, they so funded Upfront me. was actually your yes. lead investor yes. for your first company. It was. And on wow. my board was the founder of Upfront, Yves Cisteron, who's still my partner today. Wow. Okay. And I so, didn't I've worked that. with him for, I guess that makes it 21 years. Wow. So, you were in LA at that time? No. Okay. I was in London. You were in London. Yeah, I founded it in London. Okay. And uh, so Eve, as the name might imply, well, it's a man. Some sure. some people think E-V-E. It's Y-V-E-S, yeah. Eve. Don't pronounce the S. And uh, he's French, but he's lived here for, I don't know, 35 plus years. Very Americanized. But he's always been successful at doing international deals. In fact, the most recent company he sold for $1.2 billion, and we owned almost 30% of the company, was a French-U.S. company. Hmm. And so we've done 12 cross-border deals hmm. in the last 10 years, and we're actually increasing the number of investments we're doing abroad and have actually hired uh, staff in Paris now and opening an office in Paris. So oh, we wow. actually really believe in that. that opportunity. But uh, to answer your question, we raised the round in February, and had we waited like some of my colleagues wanted to do, we literally would have not raised. Right. I always tell entrepreneurs- Was that the first round that you raised? Or we a, had a very small seed eight, round. Yeah, it was sure. like a, a million friends and a half and dollar. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. actually not friends and family. It was a small fund based out of Ireland called Delta Partners. Wow. They still exist. Okay. I still talk with them. Wow. They're nice guys, wow. uh, smart guys. Um, so Delta Partners had given us like a million and a half. So my partner in that business was Irish. So we actually set up as an Irish entity. We did our development wow. in Dublin. Uh, it was actually a legal Irish entity. And so he had them kind of lined up before I joined. And so we took their money and then I went out and raised the, mm -hmm. the 16 and a half. But we raised from like Goldman Sachs and raised from Vivendi in France and wow. Zal Oppenheim in Germany, a bunch of people, Bank America in the US. So the market falls apart. Yes. What do you do? Well, here's the interesting thing. So we had a lot of money and I'm a software guy. So I built a lot of software. Now, the mistakes I made were not the mistakes that I think a lot of people made in that era. I didn't make mistakes of having too many fancy parties or spending too much right. on marketing or travel. Uh, I wasn't doing what WeWork was doing. But I built four products at the same time. And we launched in five markets at the same time. Now, that sounds crazy to an American audience, but we launched in like France, right. UK, Germany, uh, Ireland. But the complexity of different laws, different go-to-market, different language, multinational, different buying patterns, different cultures. Um, it has taught me to teach entrepreneurs the need to raise less money and be more capital efficient because it forces focus. It's taught me to be focused. And it has taught me, importantly, that time is the enemy of all deals. So I'll jump forward just a bit. But sure. you learned, obviously, what sounds like a whole number of good lessons with your first company and build online. I'm curious how you took all those learnings and ultimately brought them to Coral, which was your second company and kind of all the things that you did maybe upfront to plan for Coral in a way that, that 
you did it with Build Online. I'm fond of the saying that good judgment comes from experience, but experience comes from bad judgment. You actually have to make mistakes to learn. Mm. The, the, the example to bring it to life is think about your teenage self or think about your children if you have children that are of an age, certain age. And, you know, probably your parents could have said to you, the first girl or boy you meet isn't going to be your love for life. And you probably shouldn't drink that much and do stupid things. And you probably should study early and not cram at the last minute, like all the obvious stuff, right? But kids got to make their own mistakes and skin their own knees, you know, metaphorically and, and probably literally. And from that, you grow and you develop resiliency. And so that's why I tell entrepreneurs, you're better off starting young. You're better off making mistakes when you mm. have a safety net because that's the base from which you're going to learn. And it's why I prefer to fund second-time founders. I mean, I do plenty of first-time sure. founders, but I prefer second-time because you come to the table with all that scar tissue and muscle and muscle memory. Um, and I think- Were you married you, with kids already through the first, through so, the first company? When I started my first company, I was dating my now wife. We got married during the company. In fact, I talk about this publicly because I actually thought we were going to be bankrupt on my wedding day. Wow. It was the worst. Wow. I mean, you know, my in-laws, I just imagine them thinking, who the hell is my daughter marrying this guy right. who started this dot-com bust and, and, and now is bankrupt? Uh, luckily, we survived. Yeah. But I, there was a moment in time where I was certain that we were going to go bankrupt. Um, I then had my first child while I was running that company and my second child while I was running Coral. Mm. And you do go through these transitions and journeys. Another thing I talk to founders about, which is if someone joins you and you're in year five, you can't expect them to have the same outlook and intensity as you have because they're not founders and they're at a different stage in life. And frankly, some of your employees that started with you who now got married or had a kid or at a different phase of their life, you can't expect it to be a sprint constantly for eight years. And you yeah. need to have self-awareness of the journey that everybody else is going through. But I like to say I made a lot of mistakes in my first company, although I think we righted the ship and did a lot of things well. I didn't make a single mistake in my second company. So we wow. raised half a million dollars. That's all we ever raised. Wow. Uh, I owned 73% of the company. Uh, we built our software. I had six engineers and one QA person, and I did everything else. I did the bank accounts, the legal. I created the sales book. I actually did the sales myself. I did implementation training. I made one mistake actually, which I'll tell you in a minute. But And I went out and sold the software and we got some pretty big customers. So right. we had people like DuPont, Microsoft, Kaiser Permanente. But our biggest customer was salesforce.com. And they offered to buy me. And I knew that they were gonna buy somebody, if not me. And I had a lot of people around me telling me not to sell but I had been through dot-com one, right? Yeah. And I said, I want what's behind door number two. Mm -hmm. So what I built is what Dropbox became. Hmm. So Salesforce, when they bought my company, uh, created it a, a product called Salesforce Content which was the content management system sure. of using Salesforce. But I, I have no regrets. I mean, I'm not saying we would have out-executed Dropbox or Box.net, but, um, but that's what we built. And did you join Salesforce? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I was VP product. Okay. 
What was the one mistake that you made? So in selling to Salesforce, I held out to try and get the most value that I could get out of the contract. I was trying to get, I think it was between four to $450,000 per year. And it delayed the signature of the contract by like three months. I added so much friction because I wanted my first customer to be hugely profitable and I didn't want to be upside down. In retrospect, I realized that had I not done that, I would have gotten a customer much faster by not adding friction. And that referenceability would have led Mm. me to get a lot more clients. May have meant I didn't sell to Salesforce because once I landed them as a customer, I think I would have been off to the races doing other Mm. things. I mean, I had a number of term sheets uh, from companies not to sell, uh, but ultimately I took door number two. By the way, was... um was GRP an upfront an yes. investor in your second company? They were. They yes. put up the 500000 Yes. Eve. Yeah. Okay. So you'd worked with them twice. Yes. When you're beginning to leave Salesforce, was it already a foregone conclusion that you were going to join the firm? Or when did you think about transitioning to your role as a, as a VC? So were you angel investing? I was not angel okay. investing. Angel investing wasn't that big back right. then, to be honest yeah. with you. So um, it was 2007. I actually thought about staying. Mark offered me a pretty big role to stay. And I actually was thinking about it. Uh, my wife was working at Google. We were living you, in the peninsula. Okay, so you moved, you moved up to the Bay oh, Area yeah, when you yeah, saw yeah, the company. Yeah. yeah, my second company, I started in the Bay Area. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. moved home right before I had my second child and started the second company. And uh, I really thought about staying at Salesforce. And Mark offered me a pretty big role and a lot of money. And it was very tempting, but I realized that I wanted autonomy and Mm -hmm. Salesforce was Mark's company. Yeah, which is is not surprising after starting two companies, I imagine. He he deserves all the credit for building Salesforce to what he built it in because I saw him. He was very detail-oriented, very hands-on, but it didn't suit me. So what happened was we launched a product – And I had a view that what we should build is what eventually AWS became. I wanted to take our storage platform and offer it super cheap and make it outside of Mm salesforce.com that entrepreneurs could build on top of our platform without having to commit to Salesforce. And I thought that would put us in a better position to then work with all of these developers. And Mark really wanted it built in force.com and wanted to charge a price for it. And so it's not that we disagreed. He had a point of view and a playbook and he's been successful. He deserves that, right? But what it made me realize is that I didn't have the autonomy to make the kind of decisions I wanted to make. So I told Mark, I didn't think it was going to be a good fit. But I will tell you that of my executive team, Uh, Every single one of them stayed well past their uh, Mm. minimum amount of time. And the lead developer stayed five to seven years. And by the way, there are still people there to this day, 13 years later. So how did you decide to ultimately join? Well, I called Eve and I said to Eve, I think I'm going to go do another startup. Would you like to back it? Mm -hmm. And should we go do this again? And he said, have you ever thought about being a VC? And of course, I'd had the conversation with a number of Silicon Valley funds. Back then, they weren't really looking for entrepreneurs. Hmm. They didn't really want people with my background. So they had this idea, this frame of reference was, you're an entrepreneur. Okay, you've done it multiple times. I sold both companies, so I'd been through the full cycle twice. Why don't you join as an operating partner? 
or why don't you join as an EIR and, right. and we'll fund your company. They yep. didn't have this mindset. And so I said like, well, why don't I just become a partner and make investments? Well, you haven't really made investments. Yeah, but what did you do before you did this? Because surely there was a time where you hadn't made investments. Like someone's got to, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. They just, there was, the mindset wasn't there. But Eve had worked with me, you know, by that moment in time, almost eight years. And so Eve said, so he said, have you thought about be, being a VC? I said, yes, but only if it's a partner. He said, well, I'd offer you a partner role. So we had a discussion. And what he said was, that he believed funds needed more operating experience and he valued my operating experience. So we actually had a plan. And the plan is that I join what was then GRP, that he and I would work together for 10 years and 10 years in that he would transfer my ability to run the firm. What did the firm look like when you joined it? There were six full-time investment partners. Mostly they came from a banking background. They were incredibly successful investors before, uh, but they had invested mostly in the retail sector. So they invested in, I'll just give you the names, yeah. Costco, Starbucks, Office Depot, Pet right. Smart, Dick Sporting Goods. Like they had a very successful track record. And by the way, early investments in those companies. But they didn't really have software experience other than Eve. And the firm was based here? Based at in the time. LA. Yeah. So I moved here for two years. And the idea was I would move here for two years and then open a Silicon Valley office for, hmm. for what was then GRP. And about a year in, so that's how I convinced my wife to move here. Right. So Eve basically offered you a partner role yep. and said, I'm committing to having you kind of take the baton. You have to earn it. Right. But going in, that's what I imagine will happen, right? So this was 2007. And I became managing partner in 2011. So it happened in four years for a variety of reasons. Um, but even I have run up front together since 2011. I run the day-to-day. -day. I kind of set the strategy and tone. But there's not a thing I do that I don't consult Eve. He's been my consigliere and mentor yeah. since 1999. Yeah. So, you know, you had never actually been in a venture role. Sure. I guess you had been around it for a long, a long time, time. And, yeah. and saw how it worked. When you joined in 2007, what were some of the surprises? What were some of the big learnings early on? What were some of the mistakes? What were some of the joys? I mean, what, what and I'm curious what, what actually drew you to it. So I had raised more than $60 million as an entrepreneur, right. which back then was a lot. Sure. <laughs> now it's a B round. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I had raised over like five different cycles and I had raised in the best market ever, maybe late 99, closing in February, 2000. And I had raised in the shittiest markets ever, you know, not just 2001, 2002, but like 2004, 2005 mm. were just terrible markets as an entrepreneur to raise money. So I felt like I had a fair amount of experience. Back then in 2007, I had a real big attraction to spend time with Brad Feld because by then blogging had become a thing. Yep. And Brad was writing a blog on a regular basis, giving away the game. He's like, here's how liquidation preferences work. Mm -hmm. Here's what a drag along is. Here's how your investor forms a board. Here's how the option pool can screw you as a founder. I'm like, he's giving the game away. Right. But I wanted to work with him. Hmm. It's interesting that that at the time was considered the game. Right. Actually, right? Yeah. And now it's 
Well, because kind of there like was asymmetric information. information. Right. Like yeah. investors knew everything, founders knew nothing. There was no real public blog ecosystem. Nobody was sharing. Even today, LPs, very few LPs publish any information about how their industry works. Like it is now with the LP industry that's fairly opaque. Um, venture capital was like that. And I was attracted to work with the person who was the most open. Mm -hmm. And so I thought if that worked well for Brad, maybe it'll work for me. And I had been a blogger. I had been blogging when I had my company. But I will tell you this, which is I had conversations like this, I don't know, three times a day, which were more like with founders talking about how do you hire, how do you fire, how do you raise capital, how do you set scope on a product? How do you get your engineers to not feel like it's always a death march, but still work hard? Like all those kind of cultural rich things you learn as an entrepreneur. And I just thought, well, if I'm saying this all the time, why don't I just write it? And then when I see people, rather than having to feel like I'm lecturing all the time, I say, well, let me just send you an article. To this day, I still send people mm. articles. I'm like, someone's going through a really tough legal situation or really tough a uh, situation where they have to downsize or they're trying to decide if they should build professional services or not. Like in my archives, I've written about all these right. topics. I send them an article and just say, read this. Is that what drew you to the, to the job? Just being able to work with founders? Well, the way I way? talk about my analogy that I talk about is like basketball. And when you're young and you're fast and you jump high and you can steal the ball, you want to be on the court, right? Like that's where the action's at. That's where it's fun. Now, not everyone's good basketball players. So some people naturally become coaches or refs or fans, right? Uh, but if you're good enough, you want to be on the court. Mm. And frankly, when time's running out, you want the ball, right? Mm. And that was me, Yeah. but it was very unhealthy. Like I was obsessive for a decade uh, to the point of not sleeping well, putting on weight, like not being able to focus on other parts of my life. And honestly, I realized at the age of 39 that I wasn't the fastest, that I couldn't jump the highest. And I felt like I could make a better coach than player. And so I shifted gears and thought I'm better to be a coach. What were the biggest surprises of the first few years as a VC? So the thing about being an entrepreneur or frankly being in any company is that you're part of a team and you always feel like you're part of a team. So everything you do is a team sport. And I'm a very social creature and I like being part of a team and I like problem solving together and I love accomplishing and being at the peak. And when we're failure and we're in the trenches and trying to figure out how we take the next hill, like I'm there with the team. So it's very much a team sport and venture capital is an individual sport. And that was mm. hard for me because the weirdest thing is the kinship that you build with your board members that you're on tough boards with, or even good boards with, become your strongest bonds. When I think about my closest friends in the industry, it's like people that I've sat on boards with for years because we're regularly talking yep. and we're regularly talking about a common set of problems. And the way venture capital tends to work is everyone's doing their own thing Tuesday through Friday and Monday you come together and everyone updates each other on every company. So I'm super close with the partners at Upfront. Like they're amongst my closest peer groups, friends, colleagues, whatever. I don't want to suggest otherwise. But I have put a lot of effort into building a culture to create that because I think most venture firms are not that. And it certainly wasn't that when I joined. Like we were really six individuals doing our own thing. And I, I, it was pretty lonely. Hmm. I'm curious how you ultimately did transition GRP to Upfront. And my sense is that it's more than just a change of name. Yes. Right? It was, it was a 
like you said, change of culture and many other things. I'm curious as the newer partner yep. in the early years, like how did you go about that? Not just from a from a practical perspective, but also from a cultural and team perspective? Because I imagine there was some friction so in there, there in that th- transition. There was. So um you know, I'm also fond of the saying that it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. Sure. In life, I have learned that if you ask for permission, usually the answer is no. So the reason I say that, I started blogging. I didn't even tell my colleagues because I know they would have thought, well, you shouldn't be saying that. We want to approve it. We want to review. How's that going to look for the firm? And I just thought, fuck that. Like, Hmm. no way. So I just started blogging. I'm guessing I probably blogged for four or five months before my partners knew. Wow. That long. Wow. Yeah. Because they weren't like (laughs) regularly reading. Yeah, they weren't internet people. They weren't up late at night. And I've always been the guy up late at night playing with Twitter, playing with Reddit, playing with YouTube. Even like there was a moment in time where I think I was the second most followed person on Snapchat because for two years I published Snap stories out, uh, little bits of content to people. You know, I was on TikTok early and it's not that I want to use every platform, but this is my medium. Like this is my clay. Like I have to have a tangible feeling for how platforms work if I'm going to invest in an ecosystem. And that's why I think people who are product people or engineers or worked in software companies or ran software companies, you know, contribute importantly to the startup ecosystem as funders because of that. I I don't think it is required. You know, there are some really successful people who don't have that background, but I think it's helpful. So in any event, uh, I didn't ask for permission. I think once they realized it was when entrepreneurs were coming in to meet with them for their meetings and asking, hey, could we meet Mark? Because we read his blog. Mm -hmm. So I think they thought I was cute like this cute little Mm -hmm. guy, like blogging and all the entrepreneurs, but us big boys, like we know how to deal with LPs and fundraising and all this stuff. And I guess I sort of bought into that narrative. So we raised a fund that I helped participate in, in 2008. We started investing it in 2009. Um, And when we went to raise our next fund, which would have been a 2011, 2012 fund, which we did close in 2012, Uh, They said, well, you stay back in the office. We're going to go raise this fund because you're the guy who knows the entrepreneurs. I said, no fucking way. Like, I'm coming out there. I want to meet LPs. I want to know how that part of the business works. Yeah. And as I started observing their process, I started realizing that they didn't really have the skills to do it. (laughs) And I started realizing that my experience in raising from VCs would be valuable with LPs Mm. as well. So what I did, again, not asking for permission, I wrote to my peer group of venture capitalists and I said, could you introduce me to two or three LPs that you like? I want to start building a network. And I just started traveling the country. And honestly, I would say to my wife, I'm really sorry, but the next three weeks, I'm just going to be on the road constantly. And I traveled the country multiple times and I went and met, I don't know, 120 LPs. But through that process, I started to realize that I knew over time what LPs were looking for, what their what they thought was good about, you know, what was then GRP, you know, our fund in 2000, which is the one they were evaluating is actually the number one fund in the United States for that vintage. And so we had a lot of good data, but their biggest issue they were saying to me is Eve has this great track record, but what comes after Eve? 
And they were saying it's so unclear. We're making, when we make an investment, we're investing in three funds because by the time you come back for your second fund, there won't be enough data. So I don't want to do all the work to invest in one fund. We want to invest in three. Yeah. And that implies that we have to know where the firm's going and they didn't know. Yep. And they said, like, we keep hearing about you. We keep hearing about you from other VCs. We keep hearing about you from entrepreneurs. And here's the weirdest thing. I would go to LP meetings and I'd be meeting someone, let's say 45 years old. And then there would be three people who were like 26 in the room. And then a couple of people told me, they're like, yeah, our junior staff read your blog and asked if they could come to the meeting. Hmm. And then I realized, wait a second, this blog's not just for entrepreneurs, right. it's broader and other people re read it. And what blogging gives you is the most valuable thing to people in our industry, which, which you can't replicate, which is share a mind ability to get inside somebody's head and they can agree with you or disagree with you or think that was useful. That's a good framework, but they feel like they know you and they know how you think. Right. And so I realized through that process that the biggest barrier was that there wasn't a name successor to Eve. So I went back to the partners and said, I think I can raise this fund, but I think you have to name me as managing partner. Kind of a ballsy thing to wow. ask for. Wow. And this was 2011 while you were, yeah. while you were raising it. Yeah. That is ballsy. So let me so, tell, so, but let me but tell let me, you, let me ask you, one more no, question. You asked a yeah. question that I didn't answer. Yeah. I'm sorry, I know I'm going on yeah. and on, no, but no, you this... asked one that I didn't answer, which is when I went out there, I looked people in the eyeball and I knew what their concerns were, like GRP, I've never heard of it. Who you're, are the partners? You're in LA, what's coming after? Did they know the other partners? Yeah. They knew Eve. Yeah. They knew the other yeah, partners. Yeah, they knew well. the other partners. Okay, so I mean, it's not like you were been going out there and they were like, oh, we've never, okay. No, they met So they knew. Yeah, and- but they were saying like, never heard of you. You don't have a brand. Are you really doing software or whatever? So what I said is, here's my strategy. Number one, I'm going to rebrand. I'm not going to be GRP because GRP stood for global retail partners. By then we weren't global. We weren't doing retail. So at least we were partners. But like, that's not exactly <laughs> a P, brand difference. held up. I said, I'm going to rebrand. Number two, I'm going to move from near Beverly Hills, where there are exactly zero entrepreneurs, to Santa Monica, where all the entrepreneurs are now wanting to build companies. I'm going to move the office. Number three, I'm going to add younger partners who come from an operating background. It's going to take me a few cycles to do that, but I'm going to develop a series of younger partners that I'm going to coach and mentor and develop. Number four, I'm going to uh, define the brand as more leaning towards LA and more software and more open. So in our 2000 fund, we were 15% LA. By our third fund, we were 40% LA. And I've now pushed it to almost 45%. So what I believe in investing is you have to have edge. Edge means you truly have to know something or somebody or have some access or have some view that other people don't have. Very few firms have an edge, some differentiation. They just do deals, right? And you can get mm -hmm. lucky in deals or you can be unlucky in deals. We very much focus on our edge. One of our edge is investing in Southern California. It's not the only thing. Like I told you already, we do a ton of cross-border deals that we've done for years that gives us an edge in that, in that field. Uh, but that was one edge. And so I wanted to lean into that and I wanted to own that and I wanted to help the ecosystem here be created. So I said, these are the things we're doing. And I had a couple of funds that say that all sounds really good, but you haven't done it. We'll look right. at your next fund. So that fundraise was so freaking hard. It took me 13 months. It took me a lot of time away from the family. 
it's when I wrote this blog post called Entrepreneurship, which is amongst my better read blog post, because I felt like I was back in the old days of being yeah. an entrepreneur again. I mean, you were effectively pitching it while you were pivoting yes. the firm. Yes. And building what I wanted to be the future. So I yeah. really was in many ways running a startup. Uh, but we got the fund done. We raised $195 million. I got some new LPs that had never backed us before. And one in particular wrote a $22.5 million check and said, I buy your vision, I'm mm -hmm. in. And that was Morgan Stanley and a guy named Jamie Sparrens. Mm -hmm. And he said, I always look for people like you. I want to invest in that pivot where I can see mm -hmm. the first uh, moments of success. When I went to raise the next fund, we raised it in four months. We were well oversubscribed. We wow. raised $280 million because all the people who had heard my, I laid out the strategy. I said exactly what I'm going to do. By then we were up front. By then we were in these offices, which are, you're sitting in today, which yeah. are a lot more open, cool, hip. Like it's in kind of an open plan office with like cement and, and brick and whatever. And so it's like, uh, a very different vibe. We were in a lawyerly office in mm. Century City. Uh, by then, I had brought on Greg Bettinelli, who's been fantastic. He's yeah. out of eBay, uh, who's now, ba he backed Ring, he backed Goat, he backed ThreadUp, and so like had this great track record. Uh, brought on Kara Nortman. So, Kara, so Greg's been with us, I want to say, six and a half years. Kara's been with us five years. Uh, brought on Kara. She was uh, a venture capitalist for five years or six years earlier in her career. She worked at Battery Ventures, Princeton undergrad, Stanford MBA. She worked um, at IAC in operating roles. Right. Uh, so she had operating experience. She ran a software company, a startup. She started it herself. The board member was me. So hmm. I had worked directly hmm. with her and I just knew how talented she was. It took me almost three years to talk her into doing it. Eventually I talked her into it. She joined and she's been amazing. So like by the time they were able to judge the strategy that I had laid out, we had done already several components of it. How about transitioning people out? There are new people. I imagine this happens at every VC firm. Yes. Particularly around generational change, change yeah. and turnover. How did you go about that in a way that was effective and humane? Well, let me just say a couple things. One is you've never read about it in the press, mm -hmm. which means that we handled it in a way that was humane and thoughtful. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to talk about because of legal restrictions, but let me just give you the principles that I believe yeah. in. I'm very direct and I believe in being direct. I believe everyone deserves a right to know where they stand. We do reviews. I do reviews of every partner every year. Every year I say, how did this year go? What are my expectations for next year? How are you doing? When you do that, you find out that most people in their careers don't get good feedback from bosses. You know, I just got this data point yesterday. 66% of people said they would prefer a new boss to a pay increase. Hmm. Wow. Like people crave leadership and safety and comfort and growth and development, and we invest in that. So I always say to people, you should never be surprised if someone's telling you they need to move on, and you should never surprise anybody. So I've telegraphed years in advance, like these are the things that are not going so well. I wanna see some progress in these areas. Okay, this is the second year we're sitting down. Those areas don't seem like they're going well. You're not under threat, but I need you to know that in a year, if these things aren't improving, we're gonna have a harder conversation. Then you fast forward and you're like, okay, this is a harder conversation, but this isn't gonna go the way that you're expecting it to go. Let's start talking about what next. Here's my belief. 
my belief is if you're not doing well in your job, you know it. Yeah. You lie to yourself because you have to. You look in the mirror every day and you can't say I'm failing to yourself. So you have this self-talk that says, I'm good at my job, but you know deep down when you're not. And so my view is if I'm going to shepherd you from somewhere you're not that successful because you may not have the right skills and shepherd you towards something where you can be more successful without humiliating you or publicly calling you out for it, you're going to probably be pissed off with the person who does that to you for a period of six months or a year, maybe a year and a half. You will wake up in five years and that person will thank you because they will have gotten faster to the place they needed to be. And I'm telling you throughout my career, I've had to let a lot of people go, probably upwards of 50 people. And I have maintained relationships with most of them. Hmm. I'm curious from an investment perspective and manager of a firm, how has your strategy changed over time? Because I imagine, I mean, the market looks very different in 2020 than it did in uh, 2007. Yeah, I'm curious how you've kind of evolved your own strategy as an investor, either specifically as an investor or as, you know, a managing partner. So we've changed very little. Okay. That's the truth. And I'm going to tell you one or two tweaks of where we've changed. But we said we wanted to be A-round investors, take board seats, take responsibility for companies. And so to this day, I can tell you our median check is $3.9 million, median first check. Mm Mm-hmm. Our median ownership on first check is 21%. Now, if I go back to 2009, 2012, our median ownership was 21%. Hmm. 89% of all of our deals are CDNA, 89%. That's been consistent since 2009. Uh, The difference is the size check we have to write to get our ownership and your entry point on valuation. So you know, back in 2009, 10, 11, I could write like a $2.2 million check and get my ownership. So you're paying less on entry, but you were also getting paid less on exit too, right? So what we care about is building a portfolio of 36 to 38 companies. We know a priori that six or eight are going to drive 80% of returns. So my goal is to get a wide distribution of geography, of sector, of just even different entrepreneurs of technology and across multiple years because you have like, so here's something I've been really proud of is we've stuck to a three-year pacing since 09. We tell people three years, we deliver three years. Mm -hmm. Industry average right now is Mm 2.2 because the bigger firms know that they can raise. So they keep coming back to market, raising larger funds, raising faster. That story's not going to end well, I promise you, because the pressure to deploy is too high. And there's only so many boards you can be on and so many things you can put your attention to. So we told people what we were going to do. We did it. And we've done it consistently. Now, the strategy has evolved in a few subtle ways. So, well, first of all, I should tell you, I hired an operating partner who runs the day-to-day business so that I can focus on investments. Hmm. I basically do two things. I do my investments like any other partner, and then I coach and mentor other partners. But the day-to-day running of the firm is run by Stuart Lander. Stuart Lander was my COO at Build Online, my first startup. So I've worked with him since 1999 or early 2000, I think he joined. Uh, Eve, Stuart, and I have worked together for more than 20 years. 
I've worked with Kara for almost a decade. You know, Greg's now been with us six years. Kevin's been with us six years. Michael's been with us for five years. Like we have longevity. Our, our partner who runs finance, Dana Kibler, she's been here for 15 years. She joined hmm. before I did. So I think we engender a place that people really want to build their careers in. But I told you, I would tell you what we changed. So we added growth. So you started right. the program by saying we're an early stage investor. That's true in our A platform. As I said, 89% is seed and A. And of the seed and A, two thirds are A, one third is seed. The one third that seed are not options. They just companies that only want a million right. or a million and a half, but we still play an active role. But I added growth fund. So we're now on our third growth fund. Our first one we raised in 2015. It's top five percentile in the country. We already have returned more than two times cash on that fund, 151% DPI. The reason it's below 200% is we reinvested some of the capital. Um, But already that company's return, that fund has returned two times the cash, not on paper, right? in cold, hard Ben Franklin's. Um, And the second fund, same track record, less cash distributions because it was raised in 2017, but already top five percentile on a TVPI basis. Third fund we just raised, so we're now deploying out of that. Now, of my strategy for that fund, 70% of our deals are investing in later stage of our existing portfolio because we know where the value is. 30% is net new. But here's the thing. When I go to an entrepreneur now, I can hand over heart with evidence, show them that we can invest more than $50 million in one company. We now have four companies that we've invested more than $45 million in. So we can do the full life cycle just like Andreessen Horowitz or Lightspeed or Sequoia or anyone. So when you're looking at us, you're not looking at someone who tops out at five or $7 million. What was the other thing? The other thing is we added more emphasis on international. So having Hmm. opened an office in Paris and doing more cross-border deals, obviously I mentioned Yves is from uh, Paris. uh, Sorry, he's not from Paris. He's from Lyon. He's from France. But I also lived in France. I lived Hmm. in France almost three years. So we both have a ton of relationships there. We've always done a, a few deals in Israel, a deal in Finland, a few in the UK. I'm a dual citizen between the UK and US. Stuart's a dual citizen. Yves, obviously a dual citizen. But we now realize that the opportunity to take European companies, and our emphasis is on France, global in today's market is significantly greater than it was a decade ago. And we believe we have relationships and knowledge and experience and language that allow us to participate in a market. You're never going to be on your own, but there's not a thousand funds focused on cross-border deals. Maybe there's eight to 12, maybe 15 max. So if I'm competing on a deal cross-border, I'm competing against three to five people. If I compete on Sand Hill Road, I'm competing against 60 firms. Yeah. Last question, what does the future look like for you and for Upfront? Well, I think for the industry, we will return to some sense of normalcy at some point. Uh, I think we're already starting to see signs of that. And by normalcy, there's a new normal. So- you know, Mark Andreessen famously coined software is eating the world. It's true. Technology is becoming pervasive. So, you know, you have this conundrum, which is you have valuation creep. You have now everyone trying to invest in privates from hedge funds to mutual funds to sovereign wealth funds, corporates. So a lot of money in the system. But the truth is the outcomes are much bigger than ever. I mean, 
as we're talking yesterday, I think Plaid was announced $5.6 billion buy. Like yes, 5.6-ish yeah. billion dollar acquisition by Visa. You look at the major players out there, um, they're having to invest in technology and innovation. I didn't tell you one of our evolution rather than revolution was that we've been investing a lot more in hard tech. So mm. we've been doing agriculture technology now for seven years. And some of our deals now are pretty prominent, having raised more than $100 million. Um, so we're doing a lot in agriculture. We're doing a lot in biology. We're doing a lot in robotics. We're doing a lot of stuff inside the human body. So like mm. microsurgeries and stuff yep. like that. And we've started to hire PhDs. So people who actually bring not just business acumen, but the sciences as well. So I think you're going to see way more investments in the things that matter for the future. We're going to need to feed the planet, and it's going to become much more urgent in the years ahead. We're going to have a lot more problem with energy crisis in the years ahead. We're going to have a lot more problems with healthcare and solving healthcare problems in the years ahead. So we're going to do more in sciences. We're going to do more in hard tech, but we're going to do more international. But we want to be an international VC based in Los Angeles, not a regional VC, but we're gonna to continue to invest in the LA ecosystem. Uh, I'm gonna to continue to grow my partners and hand off more responsibility to them. I'm 51, so I'm not that old, <laughs> but I'm also not that young, yeah. right? And so I've gotta create opportunities for the people behind me to allow them to lead parts of the practice themselves and develop the skill sets like people did for me. Thank you so much for doing this. Sure. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm visiting LA. I'm long LA too. And uh, and I know you've been a big part of that. So, so there's a, a lot, lot of great investments to make. Let's go find some stuff to do together. <laughs> thanks, Mark. All right. Thank it. you. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com slash notation. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational and tactical issues, and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, cooleygo.com. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.